So we're watching the sunset on the eve of my... I guess it's not the eve. No, not the eve. No longer the eve. It is the sunset of my 36th year. <laughs> and that's how it all started. Hi. I'm Sarah, and welcome to the Sonderless Podcast, my 52-week journey to try to get rid of Sonderless and find my own happiness. If you're joining us for the first time, you may want to listen to episode one and hear about the challenges I have to address in this year of my life. In this episode, I begin my conversation with Dr. Amy Muse, the director of the Sexual Health and Relationship Lab at York University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Muse is a researcher whose work has been cited everywhere from NPR, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, The Wall Street Journal, CTV, Science American, and the LA Times. And if that's not impressive enough, she's such a rock star that she did this interview while holding her brand new baby. So you may hear him chime in every once in a while. One of John's scariest challenges was for me to find more balance in my life and make dating a priority. I knew there were a lot of roadblocks to that. And so talking to an expert in relationships seemed like my best bet for moving forward and through some of my biggest fears of dating in an environment like Southern California. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you teach or what your specialty is or what you studied? Yeah, so I am in social psychology, so I'm trained as a social psychologist, but my research interests are really relationships and sexuality. So I teach essentially about all of those things, but a big part of my job is the research. So I spend most of my time doing research on relationships and couples and maintaining satisfaction and desire and things like that. So that's kind of the main focus of what I do. So my first question would be to you is what interested you in this work? Like, how did you get into this? What I was sort of interested in was how relationships are so important to our happiness. And I was always curious about this idea that, you know, some of these things are really important for our overall happiness, but they can also be really difficult. Like it's difficult to find and maintain a happy relationship. It can be really difficult to like talk about your sexuality and understand your sexuality, even with somebody that you're having sex with. I became really interested in sort of this paradox almost of how these things are so important for our happiness, yet they pose so many challenges in our lives. Like there's evidence that like, you know, people's biggest regrets on their deathbed have to do with their relationship. But we also know that how happy you are in your close relationships, not just romantic, but other close right. relationships. It's like the strongest predictor of your overall happiness and well-being and your health even. And I was also sort of interested in like within the context of a relationship, how often, you know, desire is really high in the early stages. So there can be this sort of you know, instant attraction, you know, a lot of passion. But, you know, in the beginning, there's also this insecurity, right? So you touched on a little bit of this. You live in this part of the world, in this in this place where you know, there's all these comparisons, you know, you're making these decisions about dating from these pictures, and it can sometimes seem like there's just a sea of attractive alternatives out there for us. So the beginning stages, there can be this intensity, but, you know, there's also a lot of insecurity because oh, we yeah. haven't made it. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You don't maybe always know where you stand. You may not even know necessarily how you feel. Right. And then over time, if we stay in our relationships, you know, typically we become more secure. You know, we make commitments to a partner. We start to make investments. You know, we might move in or we might start to share things. So we become potentially more secure in the relationship. But then sometimes because of that, we have less of that passion and that intensity and that excitement. That kind of idea of it's intense and passion in the beginning, yet insecure. We get the security, but then also we sometimes lose the passion so can those two things coexist in the long term and what's the answer <laughs> yeah I mean I'm, I'm working on it so the answer is I think you have to manage expectations but I think it's also definitely possible to have 
long-term relationship that's both secure and passionate. It just might be a different kind of passion than you experience, you know, when somebody's brand new to you and, and, you know, there's all this excitement that's just built into the fact that it's novel. Clearly this woman knows what she's talking about. As I hear you talk, I think about the resistance sometimes I feel to, I think I put a lot of weight in making sure it's the right person, right? Yeah. So, because I think you can make anything work, but does it matter what you're looking for in the beginning? If longevity is possible, you want to make sure it's someone I would think that fits into your, they don't even have to be in the same area. Like I'm realizing more and more, like I just, just want someone who gets me. Cause I think you spent, you have this false self, right? And I think at my age, I just don't want to be that like, right. So there's that excitement and whatever that happens in the beginning of a relationship. And while I think that's great and awesome, I think there's also something really exciting about being known, right? We do. I mean, we have this idea, I think, that, you know, there's Mm -hmm. something special about, like, a romantic relationship. Like, we have, you know, close friends and close family, potentially, that provide us with, you know, many of the same things often, like emotional support, companionship, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. But we have this idea that there's something additional that's needed in a romantic relationship. And often that's some kind of spark, some kind of passion. But yeah, we want that comfort and security of someone that is like, Hey, I know who you are and I want to be here with you anyway. You know, like I get you and I want to stay with you and I want to experience that. One of the things I've noticed in my own heart is like, I'll see particularly like strong women who are, um, partnered with people who really support them in that. And I think that's actually difficult to find. And in my own experience, sometimes I feel like I have shrunk in order to fit into. And that's the feedback friends have given me, like, when you're around him, you're less you because there's a fear of being too much, right? From like, even at like in our, think about our elections here um, recently, you know, Hillary Clinton was constantly being judged by, was she too much? You know, is she too smart for a woman? Is she too, all these things, right? We take that in, we take in all that subconscious. And so you take in that ideal of like, as a woman, we need to be less than our partners in some ways. And so the fear of being too much has always been a a big fear for me. And so when I encounter a couple where she's allowed to be fierce, there's this huge jealousy within me that I don't know how to name all the time or like uh, express because I'm like, ah, you get to fully be yourself. That's a thing. There are certain men who can hold that space and it feels like it's less and less. And I don't know if that's Southern California or if that's just the world. I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. Um, it seems hard as a woman, particularly a, a woman who might, you know, be pretty bright or have that to find that kind of person willing to risk that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think it's difficult not to be impacted by those kinds of gender stereotypes. I mean, especially as you're pointing out, like part of the climate that we're sort of still in today where we see examples of that all the time, right? Where a strong woman is all of a sudden not feminine or right. Hillary Clinton's like an excellent example of that, right? Because it's like, okay, yeah, people will concede like, yeah, she's incredibly smart and politically savvy, but you know, she can't at the same time also then be, you know, warm and approachable and loving. I mean, those are a lot of the jokes about her. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that it's difficult. I mean, I think we're plagued by those kinds of gendered stereotypes. When we're in heterosexual relationships, there's going to be things that come out. Um, Yeah. I mean, in terms of like a solution for it, I don't know, but I think it's hard not to, I mean, I think we internalize a lot of those 
gender stereotypes and it, it can be hard not to, right? I mean, that's where we get some of our examples. Like we look at how am I supposed to be in this particular social role? One of the ways we know how to do that is by what we've seen, right? What, you know, our families have modeled for us, what we see, you know, in the larger sort of society. So yeah, I think what you're mentioning is probably fairly common. Like women struggle with how to be these different parts of themselves. So how to be strong and smart and at the same time be loving and compassionate and to be able to be, you know, do all these things that you want for your own ambitions, but also to fit that within what you think of as a, you know, as a relationship and what you're supposed to do to sort of maintain a relationship. So I think it's as much about having a partner that can be supportive of certain things as it is about how we also as women internalize some of these stereotypes and what it makes for the boundaries, right, for us. I think it's hard to, like, I feel because I have such a atypical role, right? You know, I wrote a piece one time called 50 Shades of Grace, The Awkward Sexuality of a Female Pastor. <laughs> because nobody wants to think of my sexuality, yet everyone wants to think about my sexuality, particularly because I don't look like what people would think a pastor looks like like the favorite joke at a party is to try to guess what I do with my life you know and it gets it's everything from like stripper to like mom like the weirdest things and it's never like oh I think she's probably a pastor and so I think that plays into it too because I, I joke around but I accidentally became a nut and so I think there's that like weird stereotype of not only am I a woman but I'm a woman who does what many consider a male job but I'm also like super feminine in my aesthetic and super feminine in a lot of other ways that I think it's a really difficult thing and it almost, to me, has felt impossible. I either had to shrink in order to be partnered and be less of who I am, and that felt not very good either because I'm really capable of letting the other person's life become my focus. That's just, you know, as someone who's an empathic person, I just... It's really easy for me. I'm a cheerleader by heart. You know, I would, I'll invite anyone. Like, I just want to cheer on anyone doing anything. So it either feels like I have to disappear or I am too much. And so I think that's where some of these conversations around, like, is it possible? Because I can't, no one can maintain that false self for very long, right? Like, the joke is, what is it, five months? And I don't know if there's actual research around that. You might know, like, five months and then you know the real person and you got to figure out that at that point if you can handle it. I've never heard that. Is that true? I don't, you've never heard that? I mean, we have ideas about like what the honeymoon phase is, which would typically be longer than that. But mm. knowing someone, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I would agree that you could get a good sense of someone, but I, I guess it would depend on what kind of experiences you've had with them. So in my heart and in my next year of my life, I really want to figure out if I can believe in longevity of relationship because I have gone through some pretty traumatic relational experiences and I think it has left me with this cynical side that I don't always like to admit is there and so you know that ideal or that understanding of like the bitter woman I never want to become that and yet I somehow feel like everyone has passed me by and uh, I don't know if it's my unrealistic expectations of what is met in a interpersonal relationship because I was listening to public radio and they were talking about how some people See, public radio, that's super sexy. Uh, They were talking about how when marriages lasted longer, people were still really ingrained in the rest of their community. And so there wasn't an expectation that that one person meet all of your needs. But now as people are paired and often paired in like big cities or, you know, places like that, that one person becomes your social sphere and no person can meet all those needs. And so that's also where a lot of the rub is coming from, because you didn't have the expectation that one person would meet all of those needs. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is an interesting idea. So there's a book coming out next week. It's a friend of mine. He's a psychologist as well. His name's Eli Finkel and it's called the all or nothing marriage. And he Mm. exactly about these kinds of ideas. Like we used to not place all of these expectations on one person. It like exactly what you said, that we had a community that met these different needs that we have. We didn't even necessarily expect, you know, marriages weren't necessarily entered into out of love. They were entered into out of, you know, necessity and economic reasons. But now not only are, you know, is love marriage like the norm in, in Western cultures, we also expect our partner to be everything for us and to like help us with our growth and our expansion and, and really challenge us. And so he's been doing some research on kind of this exact question. And oh, perfect. what he's found, I mean, he has a theory and then they've started to test it. And sort of the, the general idea is that it seems like because of this, the average marriage or the average relationship is becoming a bit less satisfying than it previously was as expectations are so high. Mm. For the couples whose investment in the relationship matches their expectations. So in other words, they have these high expectations. They're also willing to invest a lot in their relationship. They're doing better than the average couple. So he would say something to the effect of, if you're really willing to spend the time and energy investing in your relationship, with these high expectations, then you can have an incredibly fulfilling partnership. But obviously that investment takes a lot, right? So there's a lot of people with these high expectations, but they're not necessarily willing to match it in terms of their level of investment. Like, and I think part of that isn't necessarily a conscious choice of like, I'm not going to invest in my relationship. I know probably like we have, you know, most couples now are both have careers. Like the majority of people still have children at some point in their lives. And I think people are just busy and there's a lot of other things that are taking our attention. And so it can be difficult to find time to really invest, especially when you think like, I'm expecting this person to fulfill all of these emotional, sexual, relational needs that I have. And not only that, like I'm expecting them to kind of inspire me and help me grow as a person and help me reach my ultimate potential. I mean, these are not small tasks. That sounds like a long list of needs for one person to fulfill. I'm already feeling overwhelmed. Because it is going to take investment, right? And so I don't want to mm-hmm. overly invest in, you know, because I get all kinds of advice from just like date all over the place, right? Every right. You need to just be dating constantly, which to me is like, hate breaking up with people. I feel horrible about it. I'm a people pleaser. And so it's really hard for me to let people down. Like that's actually a bigger fear of mine than being broken up with. <laughs> I hate hurting people. I think stay in relationships longer than you should. Mm-hmm. And I guess the argument there is, I agree with you. And, and there's actually evidence to support exactly what you're saying. Like people who are more communal. So who are, you know, have that pro-social tendency, they really care about the other person's needs, all those things. They do tend to find it harder to end a relationship and they're more willing to stay in an unsatisfying relationship to avoid hurting the person. And I mean, I can see that because I have some of those same tendencies myself. But when you think about it more objectively, really staying with somebody that you already know is not a person that you're going to want to be with long term is probably not necessarily right the nicest thing to do. Oh, no, that's definitely I know that's always there in the back of my mind. It's actually way worse. <laughs> Okay. Okay. 
hear me? Am I good? good. Am I coming through? You're coming through really well. Check one, two. Check one, two. Check, check, check. Check. Checking. He's still checking. What are we talking about? Uh, So we're talking about dating. Oh, boy. Yeah, so I am afraid of hurting someone, and I... And I've been what? hurt, and I also hate the awkwardness of, like, hey, this isn't working out. Yeah, that's awkward. That's it, never fun. I know, and it happens, like, all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. The majority of dates you're going to go on are people that you're going to say, eh, no. And that's okay, but that's the thing. It's not your responsibility to keep someone from getting hurt. I know. They willingly and openly open themselves up to that when they go start dating. And that's something you need to do. And that's something you can't worry about for other people. You know, they know, you know, we all know that there's a chance that this doesn't work out. And so be it. Yeah, yeah, but it's still it's still hard. It's just an interesting thing how you're trying to really take the person's feelings into account and avoid hurting them. But then it's like this also this other side of it where it's like, you know, staying with them for longer than really I should and making them invest more could potentially be even worse. And I think once I invest, I dive, I dive in because I do have the understanding that it takes work, right? Yeah. And I, I actually enjoy that work. So I think because I am a communal relational person, I know that in a relationship, I am going to want to know all about them. I love conversation with people. I love knowing about people, right? Like if that's part of why I do my job. People fascinate me. I'm really curious. I love asking questions and hearing, right? I want to hear about everything or why did you think that way or so that I know that investment for me is once it's there it's there it's almost like something clicks in my mind but I feel like is there any way to know are there red flags that are like in certain areas that are like no goes like for instance for me as a person who uh, works within the Christian faith it used to be for me that this understanding, like, I could never date anyone who wasn't a Christian. Right. I actually don't think that's true. Some of the most profound relationships I've had, our faith were, were at different points or different understandings, right? So because we had the same values around caregiving for people, you know, um, because I'm more progressive in my faith. So, like, really uh, love the LGBTQ community, like really comfortable with that. So you're going to need to be comfortable with my friends who are different religions or different understandings of gender, you know, that kind of stuff. Are there things that you would say that red flag is something that says don't invest here? Yeah, this is a good question because I think generally your approach around investing and believing that relationships do take work and things are going to come up where there's going to be disagreements. Like, I think that's generally a good approach to have because no relationship is going to, you know, sail on like people that have been together several years and say things like, oh, we've never had a fight. Like that would be incredibly alarming because it would mean that, you know, they've never really been able to resolve a disagreement. Like, I guess it depends what you mean by fight. Obviously, like you're, you're hoping that it's not something that's, you know, crazy extreme, but you're definitely going to run into these challenges with a person in disagreement. So I do think that generally wanting to work on relationships is a good approach. But I also agree that, yeah, it has to, in a sense, be with you know, you, you you may not be able to just work it out with anybody. I don't think you can, right? Like, I, I think that's why it takes me a while to like someone, right? So my first experience is usually, like, I'll have a crush or whatever, but to really like someone, it takes me a while. Yeah. And I, I think that that's generally a realistic place to be. Like, some of the things that happen in relationships are that people have these unrealistic expectations that you're going to maintain that passion and intensity 
from the early stages, you know, forever. And then once things become more secure and comfortable, it's like, oh, wait a second, this can't be right. And sometimes it's not right. But I think also that can just be more of an indicator of like the stage of a relationship that you're at. I mean, the things that you're talking about are generally good to be thinking of, right? Like, do our values align? And that can mean a lot of different things. Like, Maybe it means that they're also of Christian faith, but maybe that's not necessary. Like maybe it's more about, you know, a different level of how we think about values, like all of the things that you mentioned. How do you think about the world? How do you think about questions of inclusivity? So I do think that, you know, sort of generally having similar attitudes about those things is good. Not that you can't make it work necessarily if you don't, but I think that you're going to be more likely to run into challenges or to want to manage situations differently. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's necessarily one specific thing or a, a list of things that are like, oh, watch out for this. But I do think generally being aligned on your broader values is helpful. Like we know a lot of long-term couples, like you tend to be similar in a lot of those kinds of things. I have a lot of great examples of marriage because a lot of them got married younger, right? Yeah. And so I, I think probably a couple of years ago, I started having that like concern, like, did I miss out on when? I should have gotten married. And for me, I'd love to be married. I used to not even be able to say that because it felt so like, oh, I hate that girl that just wants to be married. Well, I didn't want to just be married, but that's something like... I have worried that that season passed me by. Um, And it might just be because, you know, in general, I'm often around the Christian community and people get married younger. The evidence is really that the younger marriages are less likely to be successful. So I wouldn't feel like you've ne- you've missed the boat, so to speak. Like we know like the age of marriage is rising. It's becoming less and less common for people to be, you know, married in their sort of late teens, early twenties, like it was. And, and those marriages are uh, more likely to break up. Right. Yeah. I would say that's true too. My friends that divorced definitely were married young as well. I just wonder if you like grow together, you know, and is it, hard to partner when you have done your adult life by yourself, you know? I mean, I think some couples that get married young do grow together and then they're really successful and others sort of grow apart. And I don't know that there's always necessarily a way to predict that. I mean, the truth is, like from a research standpoint, we don't know a lot about what people need to have before they meet each other that will make them more compatible. I mean, you have to think about how difficult that would be to study, right? So you literally have to follow a bunch of random <laughs> and just see who partners up, right? So all these dating sites that we see, you know, they claim to have these algorithms for matching people. I mean, the truth is, like, we don't really know that. A lot of what we've been able to study is once people are already in a relationship. And once you're in a relationship, you might, you know, we know that people can become more similar to their partners over time in certain things. You know, like what you're saying, you might sort of negotiate sacrifice for your partner. Sometimes that's a really good thing and necessary for the maintenance of a relationship, Other times, maybe you give up too much and and it's not a good thing. But we know that there's all these relationship processes that happen. We don't know a lot about like, oh, this person with these qualities would have the best relationship with this person with these qualities. Yeah, which is such a bummer because I would love if you would just like follow me around. I'm just kidding. literally just like follow like hundreds of thousands of people and then hope that like enough of them that you've been following like partner up so you could 
you could predict. I mean, the dating sites that we have are actually a good tool to be able to do that, right? Because people sign up for the dating sites, they fill out all this information about themselves, and then some of them end up partnering, right? That's not how these sites have been able to look at things. And then they also don't typically follow up with people like over time, right? Once people partner and they, you know, maybe get into a committed relationship, then they usually leave these dating sites. Yeah, the hope that's kind of the goal, I would hope. <laughs> some don't. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's the goal for most people. So, but anyways, yeah, so it's hard to say, like, we know a lot more about what contributes to satisfaction, like once people are already together, than we do about like, who's a good match for you. hard not to be discouraged that the we know what algorithm to use to find your perfect match isn't actually scientific and may not even be right. If I'm going to figure out how to complete this 52 week challenge, seems like I'm going to have to take a risk and jump into dating with no guarantees. Bumble is loading. Okay. Wow. So join me next week as I talk more with Dr. Muse and as I dip my feet into the dreaded world that is app dating. Sonderless the Podcast is hosted by me, Sarah Heath. This episode was produced by myself, Ellie Fleming, and Corey Severi. Corey is also our team's editor, and Allie handles our graphics. Our website and marketing is done by Alex Maldonado. Our theme is written and performed by Daniel Roberts. You can visit us anytime at www.sonderlessthepodcast.com. And to find out more about yours truly, please visit RevSarahHeath.com. If you like the show, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you never miss any new content or any episodes. And most importantly, leave a review. It's a great way to spread the word and help people find the show. So until next time, keep looking for your bliss. And thanks so much for listening. Blessing on the mourners, but my face no house of rest. Your hands were set beside you as that water filled his chest. Hands were set beside you as that water filled his chest.